Welcome to This Week in Digital Trust, 11M's regular conversation about all things tech policy, privacy and cybersecurity. I'm Arj, joining you today from Awabakal country. And I'm Jordan, joining you as usual from Wurundjeri country. And this week, Arj, we're checking back in on the AI hype cycle. Where are we at? (laughs) Yeah, where are we at? I think it's cooled down a little bit. That said, I did see a headline yesterday, I think. Will AI replace Taylor Swift? Which, you know, suggests we're still in that kind of hype cycle and speculative mode. And the answer is, of course, not, obviously. Considering (laughs) where we are in the Taylor Swift hype cycle, that's a very brave (laughs) claim to make right now. Well, fair call. So maybe we are still in the upward swing of AI if it's taking on giants like Taylor Swift. Everything around AI from sort of the tech itself and the tools and the possibilities through to like the harms and, you know, how do we deal with them? It was really frantic, I reckon, about six weeks ago when we did our AI mini series. It feels to me like it's kind of eased off a little bit and there's a little bit more sort of sober and reflective thought around it. Yeah, I feel like people have cooled off a little bit with, especially with the large language model stuff, right? We all freaked out about ChatGPT and the like. And I think we've cooled off a bit and we're actually starting to see real practical actual applications and like enterprise level applications like Microsoft is pushing out a whole bunch of solutions that are actually targeted at practical enterprise level applications. So they've got like Copilot and Bing Chat Enterprise and things, and they're actually trying to bake some data protection into it so enterprises can use it so that rather than say the publicly available versions which are just like grabbing people's data and using it for the training their model and so on there's this next generation of applications that aren't doing that and are a lot more acceptable for enterprises i guess so you know i I think the product environment is maturing and i also think in kind of relevant today's conversation the regulation discussion is continuing to mature, right? The EU is well out ahead with their AI Act, but in Australia, we've just had a consultation on safe and responsible AI that closed a couple of weeks ago. They haven't actually published all the submissions, but we've had a poke through what we can find publicly and we put in our own submission, of course. And so, yeah, keen to have a bit of a chat about where some of those submissions landed and what the kind of messages and arguments are. I think the timing of that process is interesting as well because the um, discussion paper that kicked off the submissions came out in early June and we're very much in the middle of that, what I was sort of describing as, you know, the period of hype. It was a day after the second open letter from AI scientists worried about kind of the risk of extinction and just after Sam Altman testified to Congress, Sam Altman being the CEO of OpenAI, which makes ChatGPT. So it came out kind of quite early on and right in the middle of it, but it's been quite an extended period of time during which people have had time to think through, you know, what are the approaches to generating a environment of safe and responsible AI? What are the best regulatory models? So a good time, I think, now to actually kind of look at it yeah. a bit more soberly and see what people have to say. 
Soberly is the word, right? Because the Sam Altman calls to regulate AI have tended to be focused on, you know, managing this existential risk, right? We need to regulate AI in case the robots take over. I feel like we've sobered on that, at least in kind of mature regulatory discussions. I mean, none of the um, submissions that I saw to the Australian consultation on safe and responsible AI even mentioned that kind of existential risk. And the discussion paper didn't (laughs) either. Like everyone's just like, look, that's not serious stuff. Let's put that aside for now. Let's focus on trust and managing real present risks and harms of these technologies. So should we sort of work our way through some of the key themes that we heard? I mean, the general starting point for me was just that there is a real acceptance that there's a need for regulation in this space. So, you know, and that's led from the front from Ed Husick, who's the Minister for Industry and Science, who's been going around doing interviews with various media outlets on this AI consultation with the quote, the era of self-regulation is over, which I quite like. But yeah, even some of the companies in their submissions, most of the companies in their submissions are calling for various levels of regulation. So I think there's some pretty broad support for at least some kind of regulation. Yeah, I think we shouldn't understate the importance of even that simple statement from Ed Husick as well, the era of self-regulation is over because it has been a fairly kind of prominent advocacy point for the tech industry overall, just generally, you know, let us self-regulate risks in general terms and even specifically in relation to AI Particularly in the States, I think we've heard a lot of kind of commentary around the importance of self-regulation. And so I think that setting the scene in that way was kind of very interesting, Mm. I think, from the Minister for Industry and Science. But yeah, as you said, generally pretty broad support. But yeah, there there have been, I guess, some outliers that have sort of taken a, a different approach. One that I found a little bit disappointing with this bunch of academics from an organization called Kingston AI. So they're sort of about a dozen AI professors from this kind of cohort of universities, you know, ANU, UNSW, Melbourne Uni, uh, Adelaide Uni and others. And they were probably one of the few that had a submission framed around this idea of like, hold back, don't regulate, like actually support growth. Mm -hmm. You know, that should be what we're doing here. We shouldn't even really be thinking about slowing this stuff down, the risk as far as AI goes is not the risk to people and the harms. It's the risk that we don't make the most of it Mm -hmm. and we don't capitalize on the opportunity. And that's the the sort of the the key argument that we have to make, which I thought was a very narrow thing for academics to say. I mean, yes, you can talk about let's do this, you know, in a way that's proportionate and commensurate because there's an opportunity cost of regulating, which is to slow us down. But it almost felt to me like when you read it, it was, I think there's literally a quote that says something like, rather than focusing on the potential harms of AI, the government should focus on the potential benefits. And Yeah, right. And there's another quote in there that I really liked that says, failing to invest heavily in AI and do everything that we can to promote its development represents a sovereign risk for Australia as we become increasingly dependent on technology created elsewhere and subject to regulatory regimes over which Australia has little to no influence. Which to some extent is like actually a fair point, right? That like Australia is a consumer Mm. of these technologies, but 
it also just overlooks the ability for us to set the rules of the road for our economy, right? And I think we do have a fair amount of influence over what technologies we accept to have here. And we do have a fair amount of influence over actually international regulatory regimes and standards. I think that position of abdicating any kind of control and saying like, you know, let's just go for broke on the innovation or the research is, yeah, like you said, a little disappointing. Uh, Yeah. And so what you just said there also sort of broadens out, I guess, the what the conversation around opportunity sort of really entails. On the one hand, it's the conversation about the opportunity of AI to kind of fuel our economy and, you know, create more prosperity. And I think there's a narrow framing of AI and the role of regulation as being kind of just counter to AI flourishing, whereas Mm. plenty of the submissions, including, you know, the UTS Human Technology Institute, actually say that by regulating AI, we create the the guardrails and the environment for people to more confidently innovate using AI. And then yep. Australia is better positioned yep. to take advantage of the opportunities of AI. That's it. And that's actually a position that's recognised in the discussion paper itself, that, you know, responsible regulation actually creates the conditions for responsible innovation. Um, And it's something that we really emphasised in our submission as well. I mean, we're, I mean, it's in the podcast title, we're always banging on about trust, right? And the importance of regulation in driving innovation and driving adoption of technologies because people trust that those technologies are safe. There's this great stat from the Community Attitudes to Privacy survey from the OAIC that we were talking to, friend of the podcast, Commissioner Falk, the other week about, <laughs> which that's, that stat is that one in five Australians are either very or somewhat comfortable with government agencies using AI to make decisions about them. And 15% of Australians are very or somewhat comfortable with private businesses using AI to make decisions around them, right? Less than one in five people are comfortable with private companies deploying AI for decision-making. That's not an environment in which you can innovate and drive new technologies and be at the bleeding edge, right? People are going to rebel. And we're seeing that with the kind of call for regulation and public concern about this stuff. So that point about providing guardrails for the innovators, you know, giving them clear guidelines and direction and guardrails for what they can and can't do is a really important role of regulation, but also fostering innovation by just making people feel comfortable enough to try the new thing without being terrified that it's going to harm them. It is also a key element that regulation contributes to us actually innovating and staying at the forefront. So yeah, I really do think that that kind of Kingston AI group argument, but others make this argument as well. It's really present in the Google submission as well. This claim that Australia will lose the race and lose talent and lose in investment if we have any kind of regulation. Yeah, it really rings false to me. Yeah. And the other element of that 
sort of opportunity to be leaders, you know, in the world is, you know, something in our submission we talk about being well-placed to shape the global debate on responsible AI policy. Mm -hmm. This is an area that every country is trying to solve. You know, that stat you read out uh, from the Community Attitudes to Privacy Survey, probably there's probably similar figures all around the world of, you know, populations in different countries, Yeah. yeah, being a little bit uncertain and wary of AI and, you know, not wanting to confidently step forward into this brave new world. So mm-hmm. there are going to be regulators and policymakers all around the world trying to do this in a way that sort of threads the needle between promoting growth and innovation and also yeah. protecting harm. So if we can get this right, actually think about regulation and do it in a thoughtful way, there's a leadership opportunity in that as well. And I feel like that's also not captured in that view from the from the Kingston guys. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a real opportunity for leadership for Australia in tech policy. And it's something we've done in the news media bargaining code, for example, whether or not you like that reform. We've led the world and Canada's looking at adopting a similar thing. And, you know, we've been a test bed as a as a relatively small economy that has relatively robust institutions. We're in this really good position to play around with this stuff and come up with new and novel solutions that may or may not get adopted elsewhere in the world. So, yeah, I think the argument about the size of our economy and our ability to influence the rest of the world is actually, it actually goes the other way. I think we're a really good place to be an innovative test bed around regulation. So one of the other themes that came out from a, a number of the submissions is for me around the coverage and the scope of AI regulation, how far and wide do you cast this net? You know, where, where, which parts of the economy do you regulate? And also what's the approach to it? Do you have a kind of a law that applies to every single company in the country or do you have a law that builds on existing regulation that we already have and fills in some gaps? So I think that's an interesting kind of conversation to have. One of the things that's in our submissions, this idea of sort of looking across all sources of AI harm and risk, not just at the developers like OpenAI, where, you know, the media coverage can tend to focus on that purely. So mm-hmm. when you're talking about regulation, you know, the layperson probably thinks of, oh, this is a conversation about regulating OpenAI, regulating Microsoft, regulating those mm-hmm. organizations that are building the models. But in our submission, we talk about the idea that there's the developers of the AI, but then there's also the deployers of the AI. And then there's kind of this ecosystem around it of, you know, infrastructure and technology and labor that we need to look at more holistically. So I think that's an interesting theme that comes out as well. I think that's a really important point, right? Uh, That there is this whole industry stack supply chain around AI that is not just that particular application or that particular large language model, right? It goes all the way back to the data that was used to train it, how that data was labeled or how the outputs of the model in the training process were labeled and how that was fed back in. A lot of these processes require huge amounts of just monotonous human labor, labeling content is inappropriate or telling you what's in a photograph or something like that so that there's this data set for the machine learning to learn from. 
and we've talked about this before, but there's questions about the quality of conditions and impact on the people doing those um, data labeling tasks. But then you can go further back into the the actual, what are the resources that are required to actually do the computation? These models are incredibly energy intensive to train. And so there's this huge amount of just construction of data centers. Data centers use a whole lot of energy in, in climate context. That's a problem. But also they use a whole lot of water. There's a whole bunch of disputes and concerns around data centers in various places in the US, in Australia, elsewhere, using up huge amounts of local water just for cooling of the data center and whether or not that's sustainable in a kind of local resource management context, as well as the energy in the global context. One of the things we push and some others do it too in their submissions, but one of the things we push is that if we're talking about regulating AI, it shouldn't be just that narrow slice of is chat GPT giving a good or bad answer or whatever? It needs to kind of be this broad consideration of all of those inputs and all of the ways that these systems can actually impact people. Mm. It does seem a little bit like, at least in my reading, that some of the bigger tech companies did seem to be sort of pushing regulation away and onto end users. Um, so Microsoft advocates for an outcomes-based approach in, in its submission, which is sort of talking about the idea that, you know, the regulation should be at the point of the outcome of the technology. Who's using it? What are they using it for? What outcomes have they created? That's what you want to regulate. And similarly, Google will sort of talk about this idea of assigning responsibility for conducting and documenting risk assurance exercises to the frontline organization deploying an AI application. So there's a little bit of kind of like push away from me, you know, I'm just making the thing, which, you know, to me that sort of just is interesting in the context of the journey that we're in in cybersecurity policy, because yeah. for a long time we've had regulation and expectations as a community on organizations, businesses, mm. and, you know, making sure they, their systems are secure and that, and that they've got risk management in place. And that's completely appropriate. You know, they should, because they're ultimately the ones asking for our data. But a lot of these businesses use these technology platforms that are the source often of the risk, like Microsoft, you know, O365 or other vendors. And we're now starting to get into this conversation where we're pushing more responsibility onto the vendors, because that's one, where often the root problem lies, but two, also it's the most scalable way to solve this risk is like get the people that make the product with the holes in it to fix the holes. Yeah, there's this kind of fundamental point there about pushing liability onto the organization that's best able to manage that, right? So when we're talking in a cybersecurity context, the people who are best placed to know if there's a vulnerability in Windows and address that vulnerability in Windows is Microsoft, right? It's not the company that is using Windows or Word or whatever Microsoft product. And so it's kind of a no-brainer that you try to stru structure the law so that the person who, if there is a vulnerability in Windows, the person who bears that cost is Microsoft, it's not each of the individual companies, which until very recently 
was not how IT security worked, right? Or software liability worked. Like in general, software gets sold without any strings attached. If there's a vulnerability on it and you get hacked, it's kind of your problem. It's not the software vendor problem. But as you say, in that field, there is an increasing push to put that responsibility back on the software vendors. And I think the same thing's appropriate in the AI context, right? That if there's a set of things that we're concerned about, say bias or inaccuracy in a algorithm, the people who are best placed to manage that risk and provide information about it, document it, provide controls, you know, for the safe use of an algorithm, the people who have trained it are the people who are best suited to provide all that information and provide that risk assessment on the the risk and accuracy of the algorithm, I feel. And so tied to that is this other question about how do you best regulate those risks or harms? Because the point has been made by many people, including in our submission, but I think quite prominently the uh, Human Technology Institute at UTS, uh, Ed Santo and Nicholas Davis wrote a piece talking about the fact that we have a lot of laws um, that cover some of this stuff. Do we need a, a standalone AI law? Yeah, that's a good question, right? I mean, what the discussion paper proposes is what's called a risk-based model. It's really just saying that legal safeguards should be proportionate to the level of risk of a deployment. But that risk-based model is kind of attached to the use of AI, right? And the distinction that you're pointing to is like, do we regulate because you're using AI or do we regulate because you're doing a certain thing in a certain context? So like if you're making a decision about someone's employment is the best way to regulate that because you're using AI or because you're making a decision about someone's employment. And there's a whole bunch of laws that we already have, right, about consumer protection, product safety, employment law, privacy, where we have like well-developed laws, well-developed ideas about what is appropriate and what's not. The Human Technology Institute argument is really that like, let's, let's focus on those first, right? And let's focus on getting that stuff right and enforcing those laws. And then they say, and we agree, I think, or uh, then you start getting to the AI regulation, right? If you find that there are areas where, oh, wait a minute, privacy doesn't really cover that, employment law doesn't really cover that, product safety doesn't really cover that. Okay, now that's that's the thing. That's the thing that we actually need a risk-based AI law for. And so, I mean, the key example of that is facial recognition, right? That actually, when you're looking at things like facial recognition on the front of a retail store or in a stadium, the privacy law doesn't actually cover that in a really satisfying way. And we actually kind of need some some new laws to cover that that particular area. Yeah, th- this feels a bit almost administrative, but I feel like it's one of the fundamental problems that people are trying to solve through these submissions. It's like how do you how do you cover the field of harm? You know, like we can, you know, enforce and 
mitigate existing harms through existing laws, um, but what do we cover off with existing laws? And then, you know, there's a line in our submission, which, you know, you probably wrote, which is that at some sometimes we need to bridge the gap between novel technologies and existing risk management practices or solutions. So there, there will be gaps. And then do we need something more bespoke and technology specific for those gaps? And I think one of the challenges that are comes to my mind around having the dedicated sort of AI solution or AI law is if we're going to have a sort of dedicated AI law, we need to get the definition right so that we've got full coverage of any technology that may sort of fit that. Like I think, you know, in the EU where there is a large kind of behemoth of an EU AI act, they really want to make sure that those definitions are watertight and will cover everything. And they, you know, they had to make some revisions, for example, this year to kind of account for, you know, chat GPT type foundational models. So there is that, I think there is that tension of like, you know, how do you get the definitions right to cover all of the possible manifestations of the technology? Yeah, I, I think that is in a way the entire conversation, right? And the entire set of submissions in the discussion paper is we all agree that we want the fun things and we don't want the harms that can be associated with them, right? And so how do we craft restrictions and regulation that doesn't duplicate? So if we've already got a law for it, employment law, product safety, whatever, if we've already got a law, let's let's not, you know, not really worry about that unless there's a gap there. And or if it's low risk, if we don't care, you know, if the impact's not going to hurt anyone, then okay, we probably don't need to regulate that. So how do we target restrictions that actually effectively zero in on, first of all, the gaps that you know in in existing law, and then the gaps that really matter, that where where someone might actually get hurt or where fundamental rights are threatened or whatever, as a result of AI being deployed in that area. And I think that's in all of the different ways. All of the submissions are trying to do exactly the same thing, right? The Google's perspective on it is relatively downplaying the potential harms. They think they've got everything under control and really they're focused on making sure that they have access to the data and the, you know, that they won't be prevented from giving us the fun things from their perspective. And, you know, from the more rights based, organizations, Human Technology Institute, Australian Human Rights Commission, our own submission to a certain extent, will accept that the fun things will come and we're just focused on identifying with as little impact as possible those areas where we need to kind of slow down. Yeah. One of the things I liked seeing in a few of the submissions was the fact that let's not stab in the dark on this Mm -hmm. stuff and like calls for a gap analysis. So you talked about the gaps is like, let's actually, as part of this process, government should start with a kind of gap analysis that I think the Human Technology Institute and UNSW both talk about, you know, gap analyses or audit, legal audits to sort of really know where the gaps are. Yeah, I, th- I think that's it. I think that's, so that's really the, that's the check-in, right? That's where we're at mm-hmm. with the, the AI hype cycle, the AI um, regulatory cycle, I think is probably another one. Interestingly, we need to do some of these other regulatory things we've already had on the table for a long time, like stuff like the Privacy Act, which, you know, so there are some, and it's not just the Privacy Act, that's the one that we're most familiar with, but you can read in the submissions people talking about, 
you know, longstanding recommendations around consumer law and other things. Copyright that, as well. Copyright law, all of this stuff that's important to, you know, help better govern the risks that AI can kind of not introduce, but maybe amplifies. In my naivety, I thought, you know, entering in this process, I thought we'll come out the other side with like our version of an EU AI Act. And I don't think that's where we'll get to now. Yeah. Good check-in. We'll, we'll, we'll check back in in, in in a few months and probably we'll be no closer to an AI Act, but um, it'll be good to track how this goes. I'll be curious as to whether there's a government response or similar. Another paper coming, I'm sure, but until, yeah, until sure. then. Another uh, paper, another episode. Yeah, another episode then. Okay. Well, <laughs> until then. Speak to you next time.